who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may not be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was this sight of that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, and the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
that you have a word to speak to us, into us, that you have not left us on our own. Lord, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? Speak these words into us, Lord, and may they become permanent fixtures in our heart forever and always in all circumstances. We ask this in the absolute highest name of all, that name that is above every name, that name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess, the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, and it is, have you ever been weary? And I I feel like it's rhetorical because some of you are camping. So the answer is yes. But to actually be weary is to be emotionally, mentally, and spiritually worn out. Those are the times when you're just too tired to think. You know those times? Like... I just want to turn my brain off. And your brain is saying, I'm already off. Don't worry about it. Weariness is the deep tiredness that has been exhausted by failed attempts, frustration, obstacles, opposition, and oppression, and the lack of visible progress. Why am I doing this? It is just not working. We as a culture are so result-oriented. When we don't see immediate results or the potential for immediate results, we are ready to give up. We pronounce the feat impossible or we claim that it doesn't work or won't work for us. If you own a Mac computer, you know what I'm talking about. I I am sure that the apple, maybe because I'm a daughter of Eve, has something against me. There are things that Brian can do with his computer that I can't. I try it, and I'm always saying, Brian, my computer's broken. And he said, Cheryl, it is not broken. Hand it to me. And I have to hand it over. And and he just does like three moves. And then he gives it back to me and says, now it works. Ta-da. But I am so quick if I don't get the immediate result. If that button that I usually push does something unique that it's never done before, I am sure that my computer is broken. Because I'm not getting the desired result. When we are weary our perspective becomes distorted. Life becomes so hard, so difficult. My goals become so unattainable. And I tend to misjudge, misconstrue what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing. I make mistakes and I draw misguided conclusions. But there's something even worse than weariness. And the author of Hebrews capitalizes on this in verse 3 when he talks about discouraged in your soul. Discouragement is an equal opportunist. 
It preys on all ages, all cultures, all races, men and women alike, and all social stratifications. Discouragement in the soul goes beyond apathy, resignation. It's that sense of hopelessness and despondency that goes so deep that it crushes our soul, leaving us depressed and oppressed. In the U.S., United States of America, 123 people commit suicide every day. Suicide due to depression is the 10th leading cause of death in men and women between the ages of 10 through 34. It is the fourth leading cause of death of those between the ages of 35 and 54. And lest you think it's because of our president, let me tell you the English statistics. In Britain, at least, we just wish he wouldn't tweet, all right? In Britain, at least 80 people commit suicide each week. It is the leading cause of death for men under the age of 45 in the United Kingdom. Why? Why? Because they feel weary and that discouragement in their soul. Just recently, we all were told of the suicides of Robin Williams, this comedian known for his ability to laugh and help people to laugh. Kate Spade, the designer who seems so endowed in life. She had talent, marriage, success, a daughter, and beauty. Anthony Bourdain, who had fame and popularity, was able to travel the world. We had no idea how deep the despondency and the discouragement in their souls was. And Christians are not exempt from this weariness and discouragement of the soul. The author of Hebrews informs us that we must take necessary precautions lest, lest we become weary and discouraged in the soul. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have mortal and cosmic enemies. And we are prone because of the relentless battle we face to weariness and soul-wrenching, soul-drenching discouragement. One writer, Eliza Thomas, put it this way, Discouragement can be crippling form of soul sickness. It stalks those who serve in hard places and in unyielding spiritual environments. And lately I felt the dark creep of discontent that, if unchecked, can bleed into despair. Over the years, I've learned how dangerous it is to nurse feelings that can become poisonous to fruitful ministry. Hebrews 12 warns us of the symptoms that signal that signal weariness and discouragement of the soul. Let me go over these quickly. Symptom one, a casual attitude towards sin. When you have a casual attitude towards sin and you are no longer casting it off, but you begin to justify it, hide it, accommodate it, make room for it in your life, 
you are precariously close to weariness and discouragement. Nothing will frustrate the work of God in your life like sin. Nothing will slow you down or impede your progress like sin. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 14.34 that sin is a reproach to any people. The author of Hebrews describes it like a snare, a trap, something that grabs you, holds you, won't let you go, causes pain. Sin brings weight and guilt, shame, devaluation, and deprivation. And there are those in society who are trying to do away with the concept of sin, not understanding that sin is not a concept. Sin is a reality. It is in our genetics. It's in our DNA. In fact, researchers now say that cancer is caused by the mitochondria rebelling against the DNA in the cell. Sin becomes addictive, part of the daily routine, part of our identity even now. We do not have the strength or the will to give it up. It has ensnared us. John 8.34, Jesus said, whoever sins, and this is Jesus speaking, becomes a slave of sin. When you stop resisting sin, when you stop casting it off and you begin to accommodate, even collect, justify, hide sin, weariness, discouragement is sure to follow. Symptom two, weights. Now this is not sin. These are just the cares of this life. When we begin to take the burdens and the cares away from Jesus and put them on our own back, and we feel responsible, responsible, you know, responsible for what our children are doing, responsible for what our parents are doing, responsible for what our dog is doing, responsible for what our neighbors are doing. When we take on these responsibilities, the cares of this life, the weights, we slow down. Why? Because we're so burdened. It keeps us from being able to endure. And our reserves of spiritual strength are being used. Used in the wrong places for the wrong purposes. Symptom number three. And and this is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. We misjudge and we misinterpret God's discipline. When we are caught or corrected. We wrongly conclude that God is angry with us. God is against us. God is rejecting us. God is done with us. When you feel that God is against you rather than for you, you are on the verge, if not already in the state of weariness and discouragement in the soul. Symptom four, verses 14 through 17 of chapter 12, we have relational problems with people. We begin to have relational problems. 
We are no longer pursuing peace with others. We begin to capitalize on the differences between us. We fall short of the grace of God, God's grace. God's grace, which is the impetus, which is the power, which is the strength, which is the momentum of the Christian life, which is the favor of God, which is his unmerited favor upon us, which is the gifts of God. We fall short of this. And so we don't have the impetus to run. We don't have the strength to endure. We fall short of the grace of God. We refuse to extend God's grace to others. We have deep roots of bitterness growing in our hearts. They have sprung up and they trouble us. Oh, they trouble us. You're having a good day and then you see her. The day is over, especially if she looks like she's having a good day especially if she's prospering, or him, especially if he's on to his third wife. Oh, that bitterness that continues to trouble us, bother us, won't let us sleep at night because that person perhaps seems to be getting away with it. Nobody knows what we know about that person. Like Martha, we're running to God going, don't you care? Don't you care? It causes trouble. But it doesn't stop there, this root. It defiles others. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We have to tell everybody. Because they're not seeing what we see. So we have to tell them what we know about this person. And they might say to us, I've never met them. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because I have more to say about them. Just stay away. It defiles all those we interact with. When you begin to treasure grudges against others and causes above your birthright through Christ and those divine royal privileges, you are in the state of weariness and frustration, causing discouragement in the soul. And there is no place for repentance. You might cry, but the tears are tears of self-justification, self-pity, and victimization. If you are feeling like a victim of your circumstances, a victim of people, You are in the state of weariness. That discouragement is resting in your soul. Symptom five, your relation to to God, verses 18 through 24, becomes drudgery. It's an act of duty, an act of fear, and not joy and excitement. When everything becomes about what you should and should not do, rather than the privileges you have through Jesus Christ, you, you are close to weariness and discouragement. When you begin to think of God as harsh and untouchable and his word as unintelligible 
or incomprehensible. Like, I read the Bible, I just don't get anything out of it. When that happens, beware weariness, beware soul discouragement. When God appears cruel and arbitrary, weariness is already setting in. Discouragement is entering the marrow of your soul. Symptom six, verses 25 through 28. When we get shaken easily, when things around us get shaken, when we join the agitation of the things that are shaking around us, when things go wrong, are changed and disappear, and they shake us up spiritually. Well, I just don't know anymore. I just don't know. They shake us mentally. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to hear about it. They shake us emotionally. I just don't know who my friends are anymore. I just don't know what I can believe or what I can hold on to. When they shake us like that, we're on the verge of weariness and discouragement in the soul. We feel lost, empty, and vulnerable because things around us are shaking. But there's a remedy. There's a remedy. There's an antidote. And the author tells us it's to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's to rivet our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 2.1, looking unto Jesus. This word looking means to take our eyes off of something and put it on something else. So we're to take our eyes off, off of the problems, off of whatever else, your grudges. Take it off and look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. It is a deliberate act to remove your gaze from where it has been and place it on Jesus. I had a hyperactive son. I say that because now he's a hyperactive man. But I remember when he was a little boy and I would say, look at me. And that poor child was helpless. I'd be like, I'm trying, I'm trying. And I'd have to grab his face and hold it and say, look at me. It's going to be all right. Look at me. It was the only way to calm him down. It was the only way to bring order to his life. Look at me. And I feel that the Lord wants to take our gaze, turn our face and say, look at me. Corey Tinboom said, if you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. If you look at God, you will be at rest. The author of Hebrews tells us that we're supposed to consider Jesus. And we are to consider him in four ways. That word consider means think about, meditate on. Let this be the thoughts in your mind. First of all, we are to think about the person of Jesus. Secondly, we are to think about the objective of Jesus. Thirdly, the accomplishment of Jesus. And finally, the power of Jesus. We are to consider the person of Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2. He is the author and finisher of our faith. This word author is the Greek word 
archipagos, and it means champion, the captain, the pioneer, the one that Isaiah 40 Verses 3 through 4 talks about the one who has gone before us and made the crooked way straight, has leveled the mountains and elevated the valleys so we can walk straight on this path. He has already gone before us and prepared the way. So we need only follow him. He came up with the plan to secure our salvation. But he also fought and won the battle to give us so great a salvation. But he didn't just blot it out. He didn't just secure it for us, but he finished it. In John 4.34, he said to his disciples, I must finish the work the Father gave me. In John 5.36, he said, I have a work to finish. In John 17.4, as he prayed to the Father, he said, I have finished the work. And on the cross, we read, in John 19.30, he said, it is finished. It's done. Everything needed for your salvation, everything to put you on this straight path has been done. You cannot add anything to the finished work of Christ. No wonder you're frustrated. You're trying to help Jesus out. He keeps the world spinning. Try that for an hour. He keeps your heart pumping. Don't you love the fact that all the muscles that are necessary to life are involuntary? I don't know what I'd do if I had responsibility for my heart pumping. Sometimes I become conscious of my breathing and it stresses me out. I'm like, have I taken a breath? I need to breathe. It, you know, I, I forget that he's already got that. Our salvation has already been pioneered been authored, been won, been fought for us, and secured. Consider the objective of Jesus. It tells us in Hebrews 12 too, that he did this for the joy that was set before him. Jesus did this for joy. What motivated Jesus to pay such an expensive and painful ransom? The thought of you. And the thought of me being with him in his glory for all eternity. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Consider how greatly you are loved, adored, wanted, and cherished. You are his joy. You are his motivation that he can be with you forever and ever, and you can share and partake in his glory. Consider that. Consider the accomplishment of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 through 4, he endured the cross, not just the physical pain, the brutality of men, not just the emotional pain, the rejection of men, not just the public humiliation, not just the hostility of sinners. It was the cosmic spiritual shame of all the collective sin of the world laid on his account. That which he despised, that which he hated, 
that which had caused the ruin of those he loved, he took on himself and paid the penalty for. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took all the indignities, the rejection, the hostility, the judgment we so aptly deserve. And he paid the cosmic price that he might save us and ultimately glorify us with himself. He resisted sin to the shedding of blood. Never ever has anyone experienced the pressure that Jesus experienced to sin. All hell waged against him as he sought to die for your sins. The pressure to turn away from the will of God was strong, was strong. We're told in the temptation of Jesus that Satan said, bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. That word bow down can be translated just once, just once, just once bow down to me and I'll give you all this. Just one time. But Jesus resisted. He had fasted for 40 days and nights. He was tired. He was hungry. He knew the weariness. He knew the frustration of the soul. And yet he said, no. On the cross, the voice of Satan shouted from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from the chief priests, save yourself if you are the son of God. And he resisted. He resisted. What incredible restraint. What incredible restraint. You know, you might think you have that type of restraint. You don't. All you need is a piece of chocolate and a diet. And you will see that you don't have that restraint. I was walking my dog this one day and I was thinking of the glorious, wondrous restraint of Jesus. And two bicyclists came toward me not in single file, but riding tandem. And the man said to me, woman, woman, hold your dog. My dog was right next to me. And you know, I'm thinking about the beauty, the restraint, the glory of the Lord. And so I said to him, man, hold your mouth. (laughs) And the thought came to me, what was I just thinking of? Oh, the restraint of Jesus. And then that man said to me, shut up. So I called after him, you shut up. (laughs) One moment in glory and the next moment right there on earth. (laughs) Nobody has ever shown the restraint of Jesus, the price he paid. He's done the hard part. Finally, consider the power of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of power. He sits. He sits. It's done. It's accomplished. He's resting. And he's at the right hand of the greatest power, the greatest place of honor. And what is he doing in that place? In Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, he sits there and he speaks to the Father about us. He intercedes for us. 
oh, his love. Like, I want that one in heaven with me. I want that one. I want that one. He prayed for Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have been tested and tried, return to me and strengthen your brethren. You'll come through this, Peter, because I have prayed for you. Satan will be able to shake you, but not ruin you or destroy you, Peter, because I have prayed for you and your faith will not fail. He is praying for us. In conclusion, as we fix our eyes on Jesus and consider his person, his joy, his accomplishment, his power, our perspective will change. Our weariness will give way to strength and our discouragement to divine perspective. We will realize that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those who looking toward Jesus and the promise of Jesus in the Old Testament carried out great exploits, Hebrews 11. And we will realize that the potential for great exploits, for encouragement, for joy is even greater as we look to Jesus. We have greater potential to offer to God what he wants to please God, to save our family, to pass the tests of life, to bless the next generation, to make the right choices, to bring the walls down, to subdue kingdoms, to work righteousness, to obtain the promises, to stop the mouths of lions, to quench the violence of fires, to escape the sword, to become strong in weakness, to become valiant in battle, to turn the enemy to flight, to receive the dead back to life, and to endure persecution. All because of Jesus. We will have the right perspective on sin and weights. We simply won't want them. We simply won't want them because we will want to run as fast and as graceful and as beautifully as we possibly can. We will see the discipline and the chastening of the Lord as signs that God loves us. Other people can get away with it, but I can't because I'm a child of God. If you can get away with sin, do not congratulate yourself. You might be illegitimate. Just saying. But when I am chastened, I know that the Lord loves me. Let me say this. My father was a well-known Bible teacher, very well-known. He had four children, and only those four children and my two sons ever felt the power of his hand on their seat. And it was strong. And I watched other kids at church, because my father was a pastor, get away with everything. But I knew I wouldn't get away with it. He even knew where I was sitting in church. And he would look at me and he would smile and everybody around me would smile and say, oh, Chuck Smith just smiled at me. But I knew he was smiling at me. Then he would look over where my mom was seated and go, like she's in church. And I used to try to do different placements in church just to see if he could find me, but he always found me. Because you know what? I'm his child and he loved me. God loves you. The chastening of the Lord is not his rejection, not his condemnation, but his love, his correction, his training, his strengthening.
When we look to Jesus, we will see people differently. We will desire to pursue peace, to build bridges of peace. We will desire holy relationships. We will guard and treasure the grace of God. And we will resist bitterness, self-pity, grudges, knowing that they are not worth losing our closeness to God over. We will be excited about serving God, realizing that we have access to the throne of grace, to receive an abundance of grace for every need through Jesus, and that there are greater heavenly realities yet to come. Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, innumerable company of angels, other believers, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. This is the ultimate church, and this is the true church that I belong to. It is the church whose membership includes all who are registered in heaven, all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We need to stop caring what earthly church has our name written in its registry and care about whether my name, your name, is it written in the book of life? Then I want, I want to extend the glorious grace of God to you. Yes, we will recapture the joy of meeting together and knowing other believers. We will refuse the divisions of non-eternal trivialities that have divided us. We will realize that we are all just men and women who have been made perfect. Jesus is our mediator, and his blood cries out better things than Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. We will serve the Lord, not with drudgery, but with grace and reverence and joy. Our perspective on changing will change. We will expect shakeups. We will learn to let go of the things that can't last and get a secure grip on the eternal things that cannot be taken away. And all this is ours. All this becomes our lifestyle, our experience, when we simply turn our eyes from other things and fix them on Jesus. Let me end with this invitation of Jesus from Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, not discouragement in your soul, but rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, the refreshing rain, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Shall we pray? Lord, you said that as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, so shall it be with your word, that as your word comes to us from heaven, it will 
water us and bring forth fruit in our life. Lord, right now we have a picture of the rain washing, cleansing. Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us, Lord, from those things that make us weary, that make us frustrated, that bring discouragement to our soul. Oh God, let us see sin as sin. Let us cast off sin and the weights that so easily beset us. Let us look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, restore to us the joy the extending joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some questions on the board. Um, You've got a 10 to 15 minute break um, before you should come back. And why go outside when it's raining, right? So enjoy, talk among yourselves. God bless you.